Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all again. Uh, if I've not met you, my name is Chris. Uh, I, I am a part of Trails Church, which is uh, in southeast Winnipeg. I'm happy to be with you, you this morning. I'd love to uh, maybe chat with you briefly. Uh, our church actually meets in, uh, at 1 o'clock, so afterwards I normally kind of skedaddle out of here. So hopefully I can still have a chance to chat with you, answer questions, or have a quick conversation before Annabelle. My wife and I have to go. But uh, it's great to be here. I've really enjoyed um, the privilege to walk through this part of Matthew with you guys. It's been a real joy for me, and I hope that it's been a blessing to you as well. Well, if you're anything like me, um, as you study Scripture, I would venture to guess that there have been times when you've been reading one of the Gospels and you are just scratching your head, wondering about Jesus' actions and ministry. The stories are often so short and scenes shift so quickly. And there's teaching and miracles and parables. And you just kind of feel like Jesus' life seems so disjointed. And for a long time, this was me. I would read the Gospels or hear preaching from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And each story just seemed so random. Stories one after the other with seemingly no connection between them. And if you're there, if that's where you are today, struggling to see how the parts of each gospel narrative connects, even though it might feel random, you probably know that it isn't. Because you understand that Jesus' ministry was purposeful. He certainly wasn't arbitrary, by no means. But you just can't seem to understand how it all might fit together. And I I find that this is primarily symptomatic of a style of preaching and habit of Bible study that those of us who grew up in the church have likely been exposed to for a long time. Maybe you went to Sunday school hearing all these stories and learning lessons that were never taught how they fit into the larger story of the Bible. You heard sermons, maybe even going through entire books, but each week's sermon might as well have been independent as that there was no connection made to what came before it or what would come after it. And maybe you were, like me, taught to play uh, what I like to call Bible hopscotch, just jumping from chapter to chapter, story to story, every day. Who reads any other book like that? Who starts a book two-thirds of the way through, and then the next day jumps back here. We don't, we, don't re- we don't read books like that. But for many of us, that has been our relationship to the Bible. And so what are we left with? It's like we have all the pieces of a puzzle laid out on a table, but we got no box with the picture on it to see how all the pieces actually fit together and relate to one another. Well, God has written a story that runs all the way through Scripture. It is the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, and how this is all accomplished in and through Jesus Christ. So if this whole Bible has one unified story, then each book in the Bible has a unified story that fits into this bigger story. That means when we come to any book of the Bible, we know that its pieces fit together and we can figure out how they do because the bigger story of Scripture is like having that picture on the box of the puzzle, right? It's all about Jesus. So we have been in the book of Matthew and in a particularly action-packed part of it as well. In these two chapters alone, chapters 8 and 9, we have 13 different stories. The longest one's only nine verses. So it's really easy in this section, especially for us to read through this and be overwhelmed by all these puzzle pieces, right? However, I hope that as we have studied these chapters, you have started to see how these puzzle pieces might actually fit together. But even if you haven't, or maybe if you're just uh, new to Trinity Fellowship, knowing that the Bible is God's story of the 
world's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, all accomplished in and through Jesus Christ, then we know that even in this tiny section of the Bible, Matthew chapters 8 and 9, are here to teach us something about Jesus. Amen? So what is that something? Well, as we have already seen since we are at the end of this section, that the main point Matthew is making in chapters 8 and 9 is to demonstrate Jesus' authority. And each of these stories develops that idea or adds detail to that picture. As we have studied this larger narrative section, we have seen different facets of Jesus' power and authority come to the foreground. But you you may be thinking... um, Chris, I get it. Jesus, Jesus is powerful. I mean, he's Jesus after all. Come on. But knowing that doesn't exactly make this collection of stories seem any less arbitrary, Chris. Why these stories anyway? And why these stories in this order? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Now, you may remember from an earlier sermon in Matthew 9, that we talked about the whole structure of Matthew's chap- of chapters 8 and 9. That, that is how it's organized. So Matthew 8 and 9 is structured into three groups of three miracles. Three groups of three. Each ending with a short dialogue section. And each of these three groups of three make a different point and involve a different kind of escalation. The first group of three miracles is uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, it's about Jesus' authority to heal disease. There was a story about the uh, man who's uh, cleansed from leprosy, the healing of the centurion's servant, and Peter's mother-in-law, who was healed from a fever which led to many others being healed. Then we have that first intervening dialogue in chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, which is about Jesus' authority over the lives of those, lives of those who would follow after him. Yes, Jesus has authority not just over sickness, but over us as well. The second group of three is from chapter 8, verse 23, through chapter 9, verse 8. And here the sense of escalation was more apparent. Jesus demonstrates his authority over nature by calming the storm. He demonstrates his authority over the supernatural realm by casting out demons out of these two men. And lastly, he demonstrated his authority to forgive sin. And then the second section of dialogue is from chapter 9, verses uh, 9 through 17, where Jesus first calls Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. And then there was that awkward dinner party where the Pharisees and disciples of John showed up uninvited. This dialogue demonstrated Jesus' authority over Jewish tradition. And last time we were in Matthew, we also studied the first story of the final cycle of three miracles. In that story, a woman was healed from a chronic hemorrhage, and a young girl was resurrected. Now today, we will look at the the healing of two blind men and a man who has a demon that made him mute. The final group of three demonstrates Jesus' authority to restore. To restore life, to restore sight, and to restore speech. And finally, we will look at the last short dialogue, which concludes the large section and functions as a hinge or transition into the next larger section in chapter 10. So now please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 9, and we'll be starting at verse 27. And if you are able, I ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See to it that no one knows about it. But they all Then they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. 
But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, to see wonders in your word, to see the precious gems of your truth in it. Lord, that we would behold Christ as more precious, as more beautiful than anything on this earth. That we too would see the harvest that Jesus spoke of and that you would send out laborers into the harvest field. So now, Lord, we ask that you would, by your word, by the, the simple preaching of your word, this, this folly of preaching, as Paul called it, Lord, would you transform hearts and send out people uh, into, uh, into this world. Give us wisdom. Give us attentiveness. Give us receptive hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So in this last cycle of three, we see Jesus demonstrate his authority to restore. And here is his power and authority to restore sight and restore speech. But as we discussed earlier that Jesus' ministry and his miracles are not random or arbitrary, but highly intentional, right? Now I understand that you may be wondering, sure, Chris, uh, I understand Matthew is organizing these stories to argue a point and all that, but that doesn't really tell me why these miracles specifically. And you may have wondered that for some time. I've wondered that, but... If you have not, I think it's a decent question to ask. After all, why, why does Jesus heal so many blind folks? Like, there's like six different stories in the Gospels of people, of people who are blind getting healed by Jesus. That's interesting. And why lepers and the paralyzed? And not many other dozens of maladies and conditions that he could have healed people from. Why are these the stories that were deemed most important by the gospel writers, to be written and shared with us today that we would read about and learn from. Have you ever thought about that question before? We learn from passages like uh, verse 35 that Jesus went from town to town healing many people from all kinds of afflictions and diseases. So why do we read about these? It's not arbitrary. It's not random. Well, first of all, we need to remember that Jesus did not come in order to heal and perform miracles. That is, healing and miracles were not the primary goal, God the Son, adding human flesh to himself and living on earth, did. God the Son became the man, Jesus Christ, to be the promised Messiah, to die and rise again as the Messiah, fully God and fully man, in order that we could have forgiveness of sin and peace with God. That is why he came. Therefore, every miracle, every healing was a sign pointing out that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was more than a man, but God's Messiah means every display of God's power and authority displayed in Jesus that we have read about these, in these last few chapters are a blinking neon side with, sign with the same word, Messiah. Look no further, folks. He's here. And as we have seen from Matthew's organization of these miracle stories, that these miracles were performed to demonstrate particular points about Jesus. That he has authority over demons and disease and nature and authority to forgive sin. But these last two miracles that we've just read are here to intentionally demonstrate and fill out Jesus' messianic credentials. Yes, you heard that right. Messianic credentials. To say it another way, Jesus is doing exactly 
what the Old Testament scriptures said he was going to do. Think about it like this. God, in the Old Testament, has written out the job description for his Messiah. Now, don't take the metaphor too far. It's not as if the triune God was holding a job interview for Messiah. It's, it, that's, that's very silly. But in the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, we learn about the Messiah's job description, who he would be, what he would be like, and what he would do. Many of these things you already know. The Messiah would be of the tribe of Judah, of the lineage of David, born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. Those were some of the job requirements on the Messianic job description that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. However, there is a lot more to this job description than just these things. And Matthew has already demonstrated often that Jesus checks all the boxes for these Messianic credentials. That is one of the major points of the first four chapters of Matthew's Gospel, and why there is such a concentration of quotations from the Old Testament in those chapters. Matthew has already argued to his primarily Jewish audience that the point that Jesus' birth and the beginning of his ministry demonstrate that he meets these qualifications. He's saying, look, guys, it certainly isn't by accident that Jesus fulfills all these prophecies about the Messiah. And it isn't just his early life that does this. In chapter 8, verse 17, Matthew quoted from Isaiah 53, 4, at the conclusion of the section on Jesus' authority over disease, that it was prophesied that the Messiah would heal our diseases. But even through these last two stories, we've just read that we just read do not conclude with an explicit quotation. They do point to a different prophecy about what the time of the Messiah would look like. So I want you to keep one finger in Matthew 9 and flip with me to the book of Isaiah. It's in the middle of your Bible. Book of Isaiah, chapter 35, if you would flip there with me. So look with me at Isaiah 35, 5, and 6. Here it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Well, here it is. This is why these stories are so important, because these are the miracles that God said would be the signs pointing to the Messiah. These are the messianic miracles that God prophesied about. So this is what we need to learn from these concluding parts of this narrative section. That Matthew is filling out and demonstrating Jesus' messianic credentials. And spoiler alert, let's look a little bit ahead in Matthew. So flip back to Matthew in chapter 11, okay? Because we see that Jesus understood this as well and points to these things specifically as evidence of his being the Messiah. So look with me at Matthew 11, verses 4. 4 through 6. There, John the Baptist is in prison, and he has sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus, Jesus if he really is the Messiah. So here, let's look at how Jesus responds. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Leopards are, le- lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. How interesting it is that the proofs of his identity as Messiah, that Jesus himself points to, are the miraculous messianic credentials that Isaiah wrote about in the passage we just read. However, these stories in chapter 9 do much more than just fill out Jesus' Isaiah 35 messianic credentials. And they do so in a very spectacular way. So up to this point, we've kind of been hovering at 10,000 feet. And so let's touch down, zoom in here on our passage for today. All right? So let's look again at uh, chapter 9, verses 17 through 31. All right? All right, look with me at at, at, uh, verse 17 or 27. Not 17. Sorry. 
And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all the district. Hmm. Evidently, after the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, from the crowd that had amassed, two blind men followed Jesus back home. And what they say is very important. Did you notice it? Have mercy on us, son of David. Hmm. The title, Son of David, is a messianic title. They are explicitly calling out to Jesus as the Messiah. Now, blindness in the Gospels is often used by the Gospel writers to not just highlight Jesus' power, but it's also often used by the Gospel writers to point out the need for spiritual perception. So it's highly intentional that these two blind men are the first people in Matthew's gospel to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So it is with great irony that these blind men are the first ones to see exactly who Jesus is the Pharisees, the crowds, and in fact all Israel needed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. But they lacked the spiritual perception to see and understand it. Instead, it is these blind men who cry out to Jesus for mercy requesting a messianic miracle that their sight would be restored. However, Jesus does not respond to them immediately. Instead, Jesus goes inside Uh, And the blind men are left to boldly follow him inside the house. Now, why is this? This was likely done by Jesus in order to increase the faith of these blind men. And this seems to be the case as the question Jesus asks them clarifies this point. He asks them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Now, what does this question clarify about these men? Well, the question that Jesus asked them shows us that these men were not just calling out to Jesus and following him into the house just merely out of desperation, but because they actually believed in him as the Messiah. They weren't just desperate for healing. And this question also clarifies that these men were not just exercising faith in God generally, but believed that Jesus himself, as the Messiah, had the power and authority to give them sight. And so Jesus touches their eyes, and they're healed. And you may be puzzled as to why Jesus commands them not to tell anyone about this. Wouldn't Jesus want the fame of his name spread throughout Israel? Well, this actually refers back to what we discussed about why Jesus came. He didn't come simply to perform miracles, and so he warned these men not to tell anyone about this because he did not want his reputation to merely be that of a miracle worker. And even though these now formerly blind men understood Jesus to be the Messiah, Jesus knew that the news of this miracle would not lead to people's eyes being open to believe in him but would continue to obscure their vision to only see him as a worker of wonders. Nevertheless, despite this warning, these men do not obey Jesus and spread his fame throughout the district. When instead, since they believed him to be the Messiah, it would have been better for them to learn obedience from Jesus and to join his company of followers. May this be a lesson and reminder to us that we do not know better. Jesus, Jesus knows better. These men, as, as well-intentioned as they, may, as they may have been, disobeyed what Jesus told them to do. So despite what we may think to be best or pragmatic 
or expedient or logically consistent, it is always better and more important for us to obey whatever Jesus has commanded. So let us not be wise in our own eyes, but see and understand that what Jesus said is right and good and ought to be obeyed and not whatever we think might be best. Now, after these formerly blind men leave, it is not long before another man is brought to Jesus. This man has been rendered mute because he's been demonized. Now, some critics of Scripture will point to things like this to claim that ancient people did not understand what caused such conditions and simply attributed them to demonic powers. However, this argument is not consistent even within the Gospel writings. As there are other stories... um, in the Gospels, that that those who are deaf or mute or have other conditions where a distinction is made as to its origin. The Gospel writers make clear that the people understood the difference as to whether a person's condition was owing to a spiritual issue or to something else physical. And so here it is made clear that this man's inability to speak has been caused by his demonization. And this is further demonstrated in the fact that as soon as the demon was cast out of him, by Jesus, the man's ability to speak was restored. Now, what is especially significant about this story is not that just that it further demonstrates Jesus' messianic credentials, but it is the reaction to this encounter that is also significant. First, the crowds respond by saying in verse 33, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Never? I mean, really, never? Never, ever. Now, some Bible teachers might suggest that this statement by the crowds is in reference to all of the many miracles that Jesus had performed in chapters 8 and 9. However, I disagree with that suggestion as the Pharisees, their response in verse 34 is specific to the encounter with this demonized mute man. So in that case... What, why does the crowd say that something like this has never happened in Israel? Certainly, prior to the coming of Jesus, demons had been cast out by the work of Jewish leaders. It is not as if spiritual warfare had only started to occur in this way when Jesus was on the earth. So what is so significant about this story that garners this kind of response. Well, this is actually a time where understanding some historical, cultural context is actually particularly helpful. So according to the tradition of the scribes and the Pharisees that were eventually written down in what is called the Mishnah, it was impossible to cast out a demon that rendered somebody mute. It was impossible. Why on earth would they believe that? Well, like anything, the the rabbis, since the time of the return from exile, came up with all kinds of extra-biblical procedures for seemingly everything. And exorcism was certainly no exception. There were all kinds of procedures and traditions that had developed by the time of Jesus that detailed how a Pharisee or a priest might go about casting out a demon. The most important for this story here is the belief that it was necessary to learn the name of a demon in order to cast it out of a person. To learn the name. Therefore, according to this logic, since they believed it necessary to learn the name of the demon in order to cast it out, then a demon that made someone mute was thus impossible to cast out. So, quite literally... To the crowds observing this miracle, Jesus had done something that had never been done before. Something that they all believed to be impossible by a miracle worker, even by a miracle worker as they viewed him to be. I mean, what a bang to end this section on. This narrative section all about demonstrating the power and authority of Jesus, even in this story, as short as it is, demonstrates Jesus' messianic credentials in a spectacular way. Now, I want to be clear. I want to be clear on something before we move on. There are some Christians today that some of you may or may not be aware of who also teach that it is necessary or at least important 
to learn the name of a demon in order to cast them out. First of all, yes, you may one day encounter someone that has been demonized. It is a myth that these kinds of things only happen on the frontier of the mission field or in cultures where spiritism is especially prevalent. And besides the point, I would argue that Canada is nearly on the frontier of the mission field and a place where the worship of spirits is especially prevalent. But second, I would also question the teaching of those Christians who say that it is necessary to learn the names of demons in order to cast them out. There are all sorts of books out there about methods and instructions on how to rout demons and to be a spiritual warrior. But so much of this is based on extra-biblical tradition, folk spiritual practices, and at times just complete conjecture or anecdotal evidence. Now, the more recent prevalence of this belief that you might need to learn the name of a demon in order to cast it out might be attributed to the possibly well-intentioned, but albeit theologically misinformed novels of author Frank Peretti. Uh, And I would remind fans of his books that these are works of fiction and are not meant to be guides for spiritual practice or sources for our theology. They're novels, not the Bible. But looking back farther, it is possible that this exorcism procedure lived on in Catholic writings... Yet either way, there is no instruction given in the Bible or even insinuation that we as Christians should seek to learn the name of a demon in order to cast it out. Besides, why would we find it necessary to adapt an extra-biblical tradition of the Pharisees for how we ought to engage in spiritual warfare today? It doesn't make sense. Now, there is so much I wish I could say here on the topic of spiritual warfare that I simply do not have time to discuss. Part of me wants to dive deeper into this topic of spiritual warfare because it is full of extreme perspectives that, where Christians either disregard it entirely or make it out to be so much more than it is. If you, but I will recommend some. If you want to know more on this topic, I do highly recommend a book called Three Crucial Questions About Spiritual Warfare uh, by a man uh, named Clinton Arnold. This has helped me quite a lot in this area. So I recommend that book to you. But before we move on, I will say this. I will say this. Let us not make another mistake of the Pharisees and develop procedures and methods for combating demonic forces that the Bible simply does not provide for us. At the heart of this impulse to be obsessed over methodology is the doubt of the sufficiency of God's word. The Bible contains enough information for the Christian to know how to fight in any spiritual battle. It's enough. But that doesn't mean that the Bible has every answer to every question we might have. Right? We need to learn, then, how to be content with that instead of trying to come up with our own answers. There are important principles we ought to know about spiritual warfare. But be weary of any teaching on spiritual warfare that reads more like an instruction manual than a call to faith in the power of Jesus. The word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Yes, the Bible is the weapon of our warfare against the spiritual forces of darkness. Absolutely. However, that doesn't mean we use it like a magic wand to zap demonic forces. Bible verses are not spiritual bullets which we load into a spiritual glock to shoot down demons with. You are not the one with any power. It is the Spirit in you, the Spirit of Christ, who is the powerful one. Amen. Spiritual warfare 
is fundamentally the battle of truth over lie. I'm going to say that again, and I hope that you write it down, because when I first heard it, I wrote it down too. Spiritual warfare is fundamentally a battle of truth over lie. That means that the Bible is the sword of the Spirit insofar as it is our only way to replace the lies of Satan with the truth of God. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit insofar as it is our only way to replace the lies of Satan with the truth of God. So if this brief discussion on spiritual warfare is totally new for you, and maybe it is giving you a sense of fear, I tell you now, do not be afraid. For we have the, the word and the spirit, and that is enough. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That is the fundamental fact of our victory over the spiritual forces of darkness. It is not by our clever deduction or spiritual procedures or because we are able to learn a demon's name, whatever it might be, that we will have victory in the future. It is because the Spirit of Christ dwells within us and he is the one who has been given all authority to cast out any spiritual adversary, mute or otherwise. So let us not be faithless like the Pharisees. For in this display of great power, their response is truly horrifying and reprehensible. Look at verse 34 again. For the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Let that sink in for a moment. What they're actually saying by that. After witnessing this apparent theological impossibility, rather than turning in faith, what do they conclude instead? They conclude that the only way Jesus had the ability to cast out a mute demon was because he had inside information. They conclude that the only way he could have cast out that demon was by the power of Satan. This is truly blasphemy, the highest and most grievous degree. The Pharisees attributed the power at work in Jesus to the power of Satan. Now this verse is actually an important piece of foreshadowing. As this is the charge that the Pharisees levy against Jesus when he is formally rejected by them. So I want to look ahead again in Matthew. So please turn to chapter 12. In chapter 12, look at in verses 22 through 32. After a similar encounter where Jesus casts out a demon causing blindness and muteness, the Pharisees again claim that it is by the power of Beelzebul, or Satan, that Jesus could cast out that demon. And it is this blasphemy of attributing the power at work in Jesus to the power of Satan, which Jesus calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which cannot be forgiven. Now, some of you may have been afraid or are still afraid of one day committing what is often called the unforgivable sin. I hope I can quell your fears because the, on, the only unforgivable sin that, that Jesus calls the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, um, it can't be committed by anyone alive today. Because it is by this blasphemy that the Jewish leaders formally reject and deny that Jesus is the Messiah. And the nation as a whole eventually follows in kind after their leadership. This is what Matthew foreshadows here in chapter 9, verse 34. The eventual rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by the nation of Israel. 
But this rising tension between Jesus and the Pharisees has been a developing sub-theme throughout these last two chapters. And because we have talked at length now that this section of Matthew's gospel is about demonstrating Jesus' authority. But, but here's the thing. That's only the subject of chapters 8 and 9. The question we should be asking now is, what is Jesus doing by these demonstrations of his authority? What is he doing? The answer is that Jesus, at this time, is presenting himself to the nation of Israel as the Messiah, offering them the kingdom of God and the promises therein. And by these demonstrations of his power and authority, he is proving to the nation that he is the promised Messiah and that they should believe in him and follow him in order to gain the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom. And this is in part why it is so important to understand the programmatic nature of the Messiah's ministry. Understanding that Jesus' ministry focus changes as his public ministry changes. Because look here at verse 35. After the foreshadowing of the rejection of Jesus as Messiah by the Pharisees, the summary of this phase of his ministry is summed up like this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now look ahead again at chapter 12, verse 38. After Jesus has been formally rejected, there it says in chapter 12, verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says here, That's it. You want a sign? I gave you plenty of signs. And you said it was the power of Satan. Now you have rejected me. The ship has sailed. The offer to Israel of the kingdom is rescinded. The kingdom is going to be given to some others. You missed the boat, guys. The only sign you will get now is the sign of my death and resurrection. This is the change that we will see take place when we read and study Matthew's gospel between now and the middle of chapter 12. And the last few verses in chapter 9 foreshadow another more immediate shift to a new phase in Jesus' ministry. Chapter 10, as the second major discourse or teaching section in the book of Matthew, there in uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Jesus selects his 12 apostles, then gives them authority, the authority to cast out unclean spirits and heal every disease and every affliction. Then in the rest of chapter 10, is Jesus' commissioning and preparing the twelve to be sent out throughout all of Israel to proclaim to the people this offer of the kingdom of heaven is in fact within reach. This is what we will see in chapter 10. But how exactly is this foreshadowed in chapter 9, verses 35 through 38? Well, these concluding verses function as a hinge or transition tying these major sections together. In verse 35, just as Jesus went throughout the cities and villages proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, so too are the twelve sent out to every city and and village to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and heal every disease and every affliction. But in verse 36, we get a beautiful look into the heart of Jesus and see some of his motivation for sending out the twelve. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is the result of the Pharisees and the chief priests' leadership. The people of Israel are bullied and depressed by their leaders, burdened under the yoke of hypocrisy and tradition. They are helpless, unable to deliver themselves out from under the torment of their leaders. And so they are like sheep without a shepherd to lead, guide, and care for them. The image of sheep and shepherd was used many times in the Old Testament, but most poignantly in Ezekiel 34, 
There, Yahweh speaks to the leaders of Israel as horrible shepherds who have abused the sheep they were charged to care for. And there, Yahweh tells them that he will come and rescue the sheep. In Ezekiel 34.10, it says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. And now, the Lord's Messiah, the great shepherd of the sheep, has come to rescue his sheep out from under the abusive care of these poor shepherds. And what does the great shepherd do? In response to the people of Israel's poor shepherds, the great shepherd commissions and sends out his under-shepherds to bring the sheep of Israel into his fold. So finally, in verse 37, Jesus speaks to his disciples. Now here I believe that the reference to the disciples in verse 37 does not mean the twelve, as it isn't until the next verse that the twelve are actually called and selected as the twelve. Here, these disciples are more broadly all those who had come up to this point Uh, all those who had up to this point been following Jesus in his ministry. But this command in verse 37 is for all of us to hear and obey. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers into his harvest. This verse is just massive from great theological depth to the simple and the practical. Do our hearts reflect the heart of Jesus in this? When we look out on the crowds, do we see them as potential sheep who are without a shepherd? When we look out on the people around us, when we are maybe at a sporting event or in the grocery store, do we see a harvest? Or are we just cynical? We have become so culturally pessimistic that we have forgotten that Jesus has told us the harvest is plentiful. It's plentiful. There's crops out in that field waiting to be harvested. The problem isn't the harvest. We think it's the harvest. The problem isn't the harvest. It's the lack of labor. We must not forget this. We serve the Lord of the harvest and he has invited and commanded us to join him in his labor. Let us pray earnestly that more laborers would be raised up and sent out. And this word translated, send out, does not mean like send, like you would send a message. The word here translated send out is actually the same word used in verse 33 in reference to the demon being cast out. It's the same word. It's not just about, like, sending a message. It's grabbed by the haunches and thrown out. Tossed into the field. Pray that laborers would be cast out, thrust out into the field. Us included. That that we would be about getting off the benches and into the field. There's work to be done, so let's be about doing it. One of the greatest difficulties I I, I envision for my own ministry and the ministry of others in this time is the difficult work of convincing this generation of Christians that every single one of you, as a Christian, is a missionary. Every single one of you. Wherever you go, wherever your feet happen to be, is your mission field. You are a missionary. You are a representative of Jesus in the world and your primary purpose on this earth is to be his witness and to be on the mission field of his labor 
That is the call for every Christian. But we have so long lived in North America, lived under this false assumption that only some are called to ministry, and some are called to be ministry. Now, some are called to be in vocational ministry, where serving in ministry is their primary means of how they earn a living. However, every Christian is in ministry and is on mission. Do not continue to live with such a small vision of what God might potentially have for you to be a part of. We know that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he has prepared beforehand. We say we know that, but we think so small of that reality. That is a massive, joyous truth. When I look out at you, I don't think of you as the Christians who just come here on Sundays to worship and then go back to the business of their lives. No. Every new Christian, by God's grace and equipping, is a potential church planner. And we need God to sink the reality of this verse deep into the core of us that it seeps into every aspect of our thinking because it will change how you think of every opportunity and how you order all of your priorities. I was talking to a brother this week, and he told me that he might have an opportunity to work uh, and, and be gone for work that he would be gone over the summer to somewhere remote and far away. And I would imagine, like many, including myself, would see this as nothing short of only a massive inconvenience to give up an entire summer. But you know what this brother said to me? The first thing he said after he shared this was how excited he was by the potential opportunities for ministry he would have. That is a Christian who knows he's in the labor of the Lord of the harvest. He gets it. Now, you and I should not be great, just be grateful for Don Dirksen simply because he graciously allows us the church, this church to meet in his barn uh, and on his property. That's, we are grateful for that, but that isn't the reason that we should be grateful for Don or the other elders of Trinity Fellowship. Instead, we should be grateful to God for these men Because they saw a need in their community for a gospel-centered church that preaches the word of God, and they did something about it. They did something about it. And God honored their prayers, and this church was planted. Do you not think that God can do the same with you? We need so little We think we need buildings and programs and money and staff. We have the word and the spirit. It's all we need. God can and will use what he has given us and whatever else he deems that we need for his work. He will see that if we need it, that we'll have it. If we need it for the work that he has called us to do, he will make sure that we have it. Don, five years ago, did you think you'd be having this church in this barn? When was this barn built? Do you know? Amazing. You never, this is wild, people. We don't know what God will use, how he will use the simply mundane things in our lives to do incredible things. When this barn was built, what were, its ex- what were the expectations of it? Certainly not this. Don't limit. Don't limit God at what he can do with what he's given you. But Don is a farmer, 
And uh, I think he knows a lot better about uh, the harvest being plentiful and the laborers being few than I do. And it's not as if me or Matt or Aaron from Shrails or... It's not that we're that special, brothers and sisters. Don't limit the Lord of the harvest. There's enough work to go around, I'll tell you that much. There's work to be done. The sheep need shepherds. And boy, are there a lot of sorry excuses for shepherds, masquerading as shepherds today. And the sheep are harassed and helpless. Let us pray that more shepherds would be raised up to see more churches planted, to see more of the abundance of the harvest gathered in. Let's get off the benches and get our hands dirty, people. I encourage you to pray this verse every single day. On my phone, I have uh, an app that sends me a daily reminder, a notification to pray this verse. I have mine set for 10.02 a.m. because this uh, saying of Jesus is also found in Luke 10.2. So I encourage you to set a reminder in your phone every day, either at 9.38 or 10.02, that you would pray that the Lord of the harvest would thrust out more laborers to be about the work of his harvest. I pray that the church planning of Trinity Fellowship does not stop anytime soon. That dotted across the towns of southern Manitoba, other vibrant communities of the gospel will be sparked by the work of the members of this church. And who knows how it might start. Maybe it starts with an offer to pray for a non-Christian friend over coffee. Maybe it starts with a Bible study. Maybe you start with people at your job. Maybe it's with a, a book on the gospel that you read with your next door neighbor. It could be the meal sharing group to support, a, to support single and new moms that you start. It could be from the recovery support group and that you begin in your basement. Maybe it's the club you start at school to reach your friends with the gospel. It could be in any mundane, seemingly unimportant act of God's grace manifested in your life that you can be at the work of the Lord's harvest. It's just life. And God uses it for his glory to save people. This is what he has saved you to be a part of. Have you seen? Have you seen it in the text? The last group of three miracles, they point us to Jesus' authority to restore, right? We saw that. But have you seen that each of these acts of restoration are exactly the same thing that Jesus has done for us, that Jesus has done for every Christian? Just as Jesus raised that girl from the dead, we too have been given new spiritual life. Just like those two blind men, we too have been given spiritual sight by faith in the Messiah. Just like that demonized mute man, we too have been given the ability to witness. And after doing all that for us in our salvation... By no work or effort of our own, Jesus tells us to pray that God would send out those laborers into the field to work. Brothers and sisters, do not think more or less of yourselves than you ought. Jesus is the one with the credentials. He's the one qualified to be the Messiah. And as the Messiah, he calls, qualifies, prepares, commissions, and sends all those whom he has given new life, new eyes, and new speech. So let's get our hands dirty out in the field. Be about the labor of the Lord's harvest. Heavenly Father, I I ask that you would stir our hearts. Stir our hearts to see anew See that field. 
probably wouldn't view it bitterly or pessimistically. That we would believe that the harvest is in fact plentiful. That the laborers are few and that there is work to be done. It's a beautiful thing. So Lord, I pray that from Trinity Fellowship, more laborers would be raised up to be about your work. And that you would do it in Ildeshane and in Winnipeg and across Manitoba and Canada. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand.
charge is this, brothers and sisters. In the third and final cycle of three miracles in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus demonstrates his authority to restore. Last time we saw Jesus' authority to restore life, and this week we saw Jesus' authority to restore sight and to restore speech. Now these specific miracles are performed to intentionally demonstrate Jesus' messianic credentials as described in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. And with the conclusion of this narrative section, Matthew foreshadows the transition to a new phase of the Messiah's ministry, for in the next major section, Jesus prepares and sends out the twelve. Yet each of these miracles of restoration, Jesus has done already for every Christian. Jesus has given us new spiritual life. Through faith in him, we have spiritual sight, and he opens our mouths to be his witnesses. So let us pray for more witnesses to his authority. But do not merely pray for more laborers, but let's get our own hands dirty in the Messiah's harvest. And from that same chapter, Isaiah 35, I want to leave you with this promise of what the time of the Messiah when he returns to set up his kingdom on this earth will look like. This is what we have to look forward to. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Amen. Go in peace.